epistle, second epistle to the Corinthians. And uh, we're in chapter 2. Today we're just going to look at a half of a verse. Verse 14, the first half. And uh, you'll understand maybe as we go through why we're just going to focus on one half of a verse for a whole Sunday. Next week I will be not here. Uh, Philip Rice will be um, preaching. And um, I will be in New York City uh, at my father's uh, memorial service and uh, sort of a family reunion for the whole weekend. And um, then the weekend after that, we won't be in Second Corinthians either because it will be the retreat and I'll be preaching on a retreat theme two weeks from today. Um, and then we'll be back three weeks from today to finish Second. Second uh, Corinthians 2. However, I would like you to ask your prayers for me because um, looming on the horizon is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is not an easy chapter by any means. In fact, I have a 500-page book at home that's just trying to explain 2 Corinthians 3, just that one chapter. Uh, written by a professor at my seminary. So um, it is a very challenging, not just to understand it, but then to communicate it in an understandable way, in a practical way, a life-changing kind of way. So I appreciate your prayers. That will be in May and the beginning of June that we'll be in Second Corinthians 3 together. And then ch chapter 4 is just wonderful and much easier to access. As I mentioned uh, to some of you, what I'm preaching on today was supposed to be my Easter sermon. But as I dug into it, I found it didn't say what I thought it said. And so I said, well this is great, but it's not really an Easter message. So I preached on something different. And I uh, preached on Isaiah 53, and I put this off till today. Um, okay, so here's the background. Uh, remember that Paul had written a letter to the Corinthian church, a severe letter confronting them with certain attitudes or sins. We're not really sure completely. He sent it apparently by the hand of his co-worker Titus. But because of his love for the Corinthians, he was very anxious about how they might respond. And so, even though he had an opportunity to preach the gospel where he was in, Ty in Troas, he decided to hop on a ship and cross the Aegean Sea and go to Macedonia and try to meet Titus on his way back so that he could hear how it went. How did they respond to this letter? And so he's telling this story at this point in the epistle. And so our verse says, but thanks be to God. Because he's talking about this moment when he found Titus and heard that generally they had received his, his um, letter well. And so he's giving thanks to God. So here's the verse. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And that's the part we're going to focus on this morning, but I'm going to read the rest. 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The fragrance issue we're going to talk about in three weeks, but today just this first half. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. So the first part, as I said, is because he was so anxious and unable to rest in his spirit, waiting for to hear about the uh, Corinthian response. And when he finally finds Titus, he rejoices, and Paul knows where to bring his rejoicing. He recognizes that the positive response to his letter was as a result of the grace of God at work in the hearts of the people of the Corinthian church. And you know, this just a little lesson here. All of life is relational. All of life is between us and God. And so when something good happens, you know, we, we bring it to God. It's... When, when people go through really hard things, yes, we then think of praying. Even people who never pray will pray when things get desperate enough. But sometimes that's the only time people come to God. But when we know Christ, we, want, we come to God even when things are going well. Even when God answers our prayers. And Paul understood this and he went to Christ. He gave Glory to God. He gave thanks to the Lord for this deliverance, for this answer to his prayer. And so don't leave out this important part of your prayer life. Don't just come to God and ask him for things. And then when he answers, you cross it off your list. Crossing off a request is not worship. It's not prayer. Give thanks to the Lord for his answers to your prayers. And when you ask others to pray, like if you send out a prayer request on our email chain, and you say, please pray for this person or this person, our need here. Well, don't just leave it there. Don't just leave everybody praying. It's like, what happened? You know, don't just think of it as, you know, oh, you know, we're going to, these people are going to be so curious, then we want to tell them what happened. No, think of it this way. Give us an opportunity to praise God with you if God answered the prayer. So that we can turn our hearts to God. So send out a follow-up and say, praise God, he answered the prayer. Or, you know, this has changed and now we have to pray about something else. That's fine too. But let's, let's include this second half of prayer of giving thanks to God for his deliverance and his answers. And that brings us to this second part, which is really the part we're going to focus on, where it says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Who always leads us in triumph. For some translations say triumphal procession. In Christ. This doesn't mean what you might think it means. It didn't mean what I thought it meant. The Greek word here uh, translated, it's all one word, leads in triumphal procession. It's all one Greek word, long Greek word. 
Um, it refers to a certain phenomenon that the people in that, at that time were very familiar with, but we're not very familiar with unless we've watched movies about ancient Rome or Greece. After a great victory, a general would sort of parade into town, especially into Rome at this time, um, with his soldiers um, to sort of glorify Rome, glorify the, the conquering general, and as they paraded through the streets of the city. But here's the twist. When this word is used in its transitive form, which it is here, it refers to one specific aspect of this Roman triumphal procession, and that's this. It refers to a group of chained captives being marched through the streets on their way to be executed. So how does God lead us through in triumphal procession? That's how it is. So the idea here is not of a victorious army being led by its captain after a mighty battle. The idea is the, that, that he leads us as captives that he has captured in order to display his mighty power by exhibiting his conquered foes. The NIV here reads thus this way. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now some have objected to this and said, no, this can't be saying this. And, you know, they want to take the, the intransitive interpretation of the word, even though that's not the way it, what it means when it's in the transitive. And they want to say, well, this is talking about us, you know, in the triumph of the gospel. But, you know, we can't just take it the way we want to take it. We have to take it the way it is. And the implication, the clear implication of the Greek is that the way Christ leads us in perpetual triumph is as his subdued captives, not as his victorious army. Now, this is a strange thing for Paul to introduce here. Why does he do this? Why does he throw in this strange image, which would have been arresting to a first century reader, but not so much with us because we don't know the language. Well, here in this image, it's pretty clear that Paul is responding to the accusations which some in the Corinthian church have raised against him. As in our day, the Corinthians generally were enamored with power, success, and triumphalism. That is, as in many today in our society. The idea of what constitutes a good leader in the Greek and Roman mind was a man who was upper class, well-esteemed, successful, educated, benevolent, free, patriarchal, and worldly wise. 
it's actually, if you know much about American history, it sounds like the concept of leadership that's dominated most of American history and most of European history. But Paul's leadership claim and style was markedly different from this. In his teachings and writings, Paul depicted his leadership as a form of slavery. Slavery to Christ. And his only authority as deriving from his master. In the eyes of these Corinthians who criticized Paul, Paul's sufferings, his persecution, his life of constant trouble meant he was not respectable. He was, must be impotent. And they cast doubt on the legitimacy of his apostleship. They were critical of him for his weakness. Suggesting that he was a person of shame and ridicule. Basically a low life. Not consistent with their concept of what a leader ought to be. So how does Paul respond to these criticisms? He doesn't shy away from them. He doesn't apologize for them. Over and over again in 2 Corinthians and elsewhere, even 1 Corinthians, Paul not only justifies his experiences of peril and affliction and humiliation, he actually glories in those experiences that God has given him. I will boast of my weaknesses, he says in chapter 12, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In 1 Corinthians, he'd already addressed this with them and already ridiculed them or belittled their attitude, their mentality towards being a leader. In 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13. By the way, he seems here to be using the exact same image of being led as a captive in a triumphal entry. Listen to this. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. And here again, he's being sarcastic about their view of, of uh, their own leadership. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. 
So this is Paul's description of his, you know, the, the leadership of the apostles. This is what it's like compared to their understanding of what a leader would be like. Paul argues that his suffering and humiliation do not nullify his power, but rather reveal more clearly the power of God, that it is from him. Paul's philosophy of ministry can be well summarized in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You see, Paul isn't just proclaiming the apostolic message of the cross. Paul is living out the message of the cross in his flesh. The cross has set the tone and provided the paradigm for Paul's message and his style for ministry. One of the reasons I wanted to spend a whole week on this one little verse is that it's a good place to introduce one of Paul's main themes in the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And I think you can see this is radical stuff. Rome, you see, Rome was not the big power of the world in the first century. Just like Russia and China and the United States are not the big power in our century. God is the supreme power in the world. The purpose of the Roman triumphal procession was to flaunt the power of Rome. To reinforce the myth that the Roman emperor was a godlike strong man in the world. But the real, real conqueror is Jesus Christ. And we are his captives. We were once his enemies, part of Satan's empire. But now we have been subdued by the power of God and have become the happy captives of Jesus. As Colossians says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What God is saying here is not that Christians are victorious generals or even soldiers in God's army sharing in the glory of Christ's triumph. Rather, he says that we are former enemies defeated and being led as a display revealing his powerful grace. God did not capture us to show off our intelligence, strength, wisdom, power. He captured us and put us on display in order to show his majesty and the overcoming power of his grace. We are trophies of war so that all the world might behold his mighty grace not by the humiliation of his captives but by our humility along with our health and our happiness and our hope all of which glorify 
the Savior who has captured us. Our Christ-filled lives are exhibited before a world which knows nothing of the power of his grace, that they might see what he can do and stand in awe. As Christ triumphed by dying a humiliating death on the cross, so his followers triumph with him by being likewise defeated. You see, in order for us to be delivered and enjoy true freedom, God has to shatter the fortified walls of our own strength, of our own cleverness, of our own having it all together, and make us slaves to Christ. But we have not been defeated by a vengeful deity. We have been captured by love. A love that will not let us go, as the hymn says. But this love knows that true deliverance can only come from the defeat of our old life. From the defeat of our pride. From the defeat of our self-sufficiency. From the defeat of our independent spirit. From the defeat of our earthly ambition. And so it is that Christ's aim is not to turn his followers into winners as the world views winners. He is more interested in our growth in humility and in our dependence on him. He is more zealous to teach us about our weakness and our need so that we know that any good that comes to us or through us is only from God. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. I hope that we all can see that this is important stuff for us to hear and grapple with. One of the greatest struggles I've had as a pastor is the struggle against my own pride, my own sense of self-sufficiency, my own confidence in my own abilities, my own tendency to minister in strength and want to come across as if I've got everything together. And over the last few years, God has been shattering my pride and my confidence in my own abilities. And I'm so grateful. It's such a better way to live. One of the major words of derision in our language, oops, is the word loser. And that word loser that we use to deride people says a lot about the way that we think as a society, about the way the world thinks. In Paul's mind, God does not make the followers of Christ winners. There are a lot of Christians and Christian groups where, you know, it's like, you want to be a winner, and Jesus is going to help you be a winner. But that's not the way Paul thinks. 
Rather, Paul tells us about a God who captures people and leads them as humble captives. In fact, Paul is happy to say, I will boast in the fact that I'm a loser. Christ has conquered me. Christ has won me. And I'm happy to be his slave. I don't mean that we don't share in Christ's victory. And I don't mean by God's grace that we can't live victoriously in Christ. But before we are anything like winners, we are losers. The first battle, the first struggle is between us and God. And in that battle, we must lose. And he must win. And only when we are broken like a horse can we be useful. We have to lose first to Christ before we can be of any use in the world. He has to be our winner. You see, you only get raised from the dead if you die first. You can't have resurrection life without going through death. And the kind of life that we have, that God gives us in Christ, is resurrection life. Is it wrong to avoid pain? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. In fact, some of the worst choices that people ever make are choices made out of a desire to avoid pain. Let me give you one little example. I think that one of the main reasons that so many Christians tend to isolate themselves and live in a Christian cocoon and not be engaged with the world and not be bold in their witness, in our witness, is because we're trying to avoid pain. You see, out there in the world, Christians get ridiculed. Christians get belittled. They get crucified. And just as Jesus said in John 15, those who preach Christ crucified cannot expect to be crowned with glory by the world which crucified him. Out there in the world, it's confusing. And you face things you don't know how to deal with. I think that one of the reasons that we are not bold is not because we're weak. It's not because we're weak. I think that's what we think it is. It's not because we're weak. It's because we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be weak and we feel weak. We feel out of control. We want to be together. We want to be strong. We want to know how to work. We, know, we want to understand how things happen. We want to be in control of our situation. And when you go out in the world, that's not the way it is. We want to be safe. And so if the world isn't safe, so we pull away and we don't want to get involved. 
I believe that God wants us to be compelled by the love of Christ. By the way, that word is a word about making a slave do what you want him, what you are requiring him to do. And Paul uses it to talk about being compelled by the love of Christ. What a great way to use that word. Constrained by the love of Christ. Forced by the love of Christ. Coerced by the love of Christ. And God wants us to, I believe, to be content in our weakness. To be fine that we're weak. To be fine that we're not in control. To be fine that that we don't know what to do in this situation. Because we have a great God and He's there too. And He'll show us. He'll help us. He's a helper in times of trouble. He specializes in that. One of the reasons that I appreciate the ministry of sonship so much is because I think they grasp this principle and they talk about living according to weakness and how Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. That was one of the reasons I was so glad to, to have that series that we went through with Sunday, in Sunday school. And we will be going through on this retreat. So I really look forward to the retreat when we're going to be able to hear even more about this and understand, come to grips with how our strength and our pride holds us back from being, not only being involved in the world, but from from the Lord himself. Because he wants us to humble ourselves before him. come now to the table of our Lord where we are given occasion to celebrate what Christ has done where he humbled himself being born in the form of a man and even was willing to go and become in the form of a criminal and die on a cross in order that our sins might be paid for. And this is his salvation presented in visible form before us. But it's also his call. He says, I died in order that others might live. Now you do the same. And we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to the old man we have to die to a lot of who we are in order to really know Christ and walk in his fullness Heavenly Father we thank you now for calling us to partake of this celebratory feast of what you did upon the cross O Lord, we come to you as weak people. And we humble ourselves, O Lord, and we ask your forgiveness for our pride, for our self-justification, for our self-assurance. And we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us 
to be content in our weakness and even to boast in it knowing that when we are weak then in you we are strong meet us here in the sacrament this morning we pray in Jesus name Amen.